Talk to you. Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christiania Internet Radio. Today is Friday, December 5th, 2014. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel. And thank you for listening. Tonight we are going to present part 10 of our presentation of Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians. It's subtitled, The Operation of a Valid Christian Ministry. That, I have to um, illustrate, is apart from the function and the objective of a valid Christian ministry. The function and objective of any valid Christian ministry, if we believe, as we should, that we are in the last days, according to Christ himself, is described in Malachi chapter 4, in the spirit of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the hearts of the children to the fathers, lest when he comes he will smite the earth with a curse. And it's, wow, it's already cursed pretty badly. So I can't imagine a curse beyond what we suffer today. However, that's what the scripture says. That ministry is only found in Christian identity. Nowhere else. Nowhere else in history. Not since the first century and the original apostles. So this is the operation of a valid Christian ministry. Something I really don't like to talk about, because when you do a topic like this, you, you um, can't help but think of your own ministry and, and the things that you do and, and how you do them. So that's the way it is. We will present 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Towards the end of our previous presentation, we broke into 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Since the beginning of 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul had been writing concerning the things you have written, where, where it is evident that Paul had received a letter from Corinth, and ever since chapter 7, he has been addressing the inquiries made in that letter. Therefore, in chapter 7, or, or what we know today is chapter 7, because the chapter divisions certainly are not original. In chapter 7, he wrote of the feasibility of marriage in an era of Christian persecution. That also afforded us an opportunity to learn many of Paul's perspectives regarding what constituted both marriage and divorce. Then in chapter 8, Paul wrote of the eating of things sacrificed to idols, touching on proper Christian conduct in the pagan world, which is also very applicable to this very day. Paul will discuss these things further on later in the epistle. But here in chapter 9, Paul has turned to defending himself, where it is evident that he must have been answering questions which had been posed directly to him by members of the Assembly of Corinth, while at the same time he is using both himself 
and others of the apostles in his examples of what license he had as a minister of the gospel of God. Doing that, Paul opened this chapter with a series of rhetorical questions where he asserts that the proof of his apostleship lies in its fruit. And he asks, am I not free? Am I not an ambassador? Have I not seen Yahshua Christ our prince? Are you not my work in the prince? If to others, like to the Ethiopians maybe, if to others I am not an ambassador, yet at any rate to you I am. Indeed, the assurance or the proof of my message or apostleship is you in the prince. Then Paul answers questions posed to him by certain of the Christians at Corinth. And we see evidence that the conduct of Paul's ministry has been questioned in some degree. In answering, Paul asks a further series of rhetorical questions, which by themselves should provide his answers. And he says, my answer to those who examine me is this. Do we not have license to eat and to drink? And here it seems evident that Paul partook of common foods during the course of his ministry, as that is the context of the previous chapter. However, Paul may instead, or may also, be referring to the simple necessity of obtaining food and drink, doing the work of God, which is the context going forward in this chapter, that working for the gospel, one must also have the ability to cover one's expenses so that one's carnal needs are provided for. Doing so, one may also have to ensure provisions for one's family. And Paul adds, do we not have license to always have with us a kinswoman, a wife, as also the other ambassadors and the brethren of the prince and Cephas? his affectionate term for Simon Peter. As we have previously illustrated, Paul asserts here that a proper wife is a woman of one's own tribe, a kinswoman. Paul may have had such a wife if he so chose, as James, Jude, and Peter all evidently had wives. Paul chose not to simply because he thought it would be a burden to his ministry. Paul may have had such a wife if he so chose. Paul was taking up collections for the poor of the saints, which are at Jerusalem, as he attests in Romans chapter 15. Ostensibly, that included James, possibly or probably also Jude, and their wives as well as others. Then Paul asks in verse 6, or do only Barnabas and I not have license to work? In other words, should only Barnabas and Paul only work in the gospel and not have license to go out and find employment 
if they have to support themselves. Indeed, the apostles may have worked for their own living, and they had license to do so whenever they chose or whenever they had necessity. Paul set that example when he could, such as when he was at Corinth, Acts chapter 18, verse 3. But evidently, they were likewise expected not to work, and Paul is protesting that the other apostles may have taken license to work when they could, and they had wives and families, so he and Barnabas should also be expected to be able to do so. Having to work at a menial location for their livings, out of necessity, the apostles would have had to set aside the cause of the gospel, at least for a good portion of every day. Therefore, Paul asks further in verse 7, who at any time serves as a soldier with his own provisions? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat of, the, of its fruit? Or who shepherds a flock and does not eat of the milk of the flock? And, and here I have an aside also. Here we see that eating milk is an acceptable practice. There are a lot of people who dislike milk and contend that human beings, grown adults, don't eat milk. We shouldn't eat milk. Well, the apostles had no problem with it, as we see here in verse 7. In reality, our, if you're German or English or or French, or probably just about everybody in Europe has some Germanic ancestry. Our nomadic Germanic, Germanic ancestors were scoffed at by the Greeks because they lived off their flocks. It's my, um, my belief, I can't prove it, the word gallus in Greek being milk, galatahi, was a reference to the milk drinkers the nomadic tribes of the north, the Germanic tribes, who lived on milk. It sustained our race for generations in their wanderings. And that's the end of that digression. Do I speak these things according to a man, or does the law not also say these things? Indeed, in the law of Moses, it is written, you will not muzzle a treading ox. And here is where we left off last week, and we elucidated on some further things. In the middle of verse 9, first, I have a translator's note, which I did get to last week. That word muzzle, just to um, raise an issue of curiosity and address it, the word muzzle in verse 9 is simo in the 3rd century papyrus, P46, and most of the codices and the majority text. However, in the codices Vaticanus and Claromontanus, it is camo, which is a synonym. This is um, one example of the differences in the manuscripts which were made due to preferences in vocabulary from one dialect of Koine Greek to another. And even Koine Greek, which is supposedly common Greek, had developed differing dialects. Paul continues with verse 9. Does Yahweh care for the ox? 
Or does he speak on account of us all? For on account of us, it was written that he who is plowing is obliged to plow in expectation, and he who is threshing in expectation to partake of it. And the majority text ends verse 10 with the words, and he who is threshing in expectation to partake of his expectation. That's also the ending in the Codex Claromontanus and all the other ancient codices and the papyrus P46 agree with the Christian New Testament. In the King James Version, the word rendered expectation is instead translated as hope. And that's okay. Either rendering is acceptable. In Luke chapter 10, the Gospel of Christ says that truly the harvest is great, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers into his harvest. So Paul compares the work of the gospel to oxen treading the fields who expect to eat from those fields. The law says in Deuteronomy chapter 25, which Paul quotes here, thou shalt not muzzle the ox when he treads out the corn. Then Paul correctly asserts that the wisdom of God is for the benefit of man and not merely for the benefit of the ox. The law of the oxen is therefore an example for men, and Paul illustrates that they who care for the spiritual well-being of the body of Christ should, in turn, be succored or succored, be nourished by those of the body who can provide for the things of the flesh. And no, I didn't mean suckered, but succored. If we have sown the things of the Spirit in you, it is too great if we should reap your fleshly things. The work of the gospel is enough of a vocation by itself when it's applied correctly. And here Paul compared it to the work of a soldier or of a shepherd or of a husbandman. Tending to the flock of God, one may expect to be provided for by the flock itself. I understand in today's day and age that usually the flock does get suckered and not succored. As a shepherd or a farmer eats of the flocks or the fruits of his fields, and Paul asks, if others of authority are partaking of you, Still more, not we. In other words, don't we have a, um, a greater reason to partake of you? Men pay taxes to governments, and those whom the government employs do little in return. And in Paul's day and age, most of them simply co collected taxes, more taxes. Men should be even more willing to sustain those who are working for the government of God. However, for much of his ministry, Paul even refused this, and here he explains why. And he says, rather, we have not used this authority, but we cover all ourselves in order that we should not give any hindrance to the good message of the anointing. I'm sorry about the chair. Any hindrance to the good message of the anointed or any hindrance to the gospel of Christ, 
either way you read that is correct. The Greek word for authority in this verse is the same Greek word, exousia, Strong's number 1849, which we had encountered and explained at length in chapter 8 of this epistle, where we rendered it as license in an appropriate context. The word exousia describes the power or authority to do something or to have license in a thing which gives one the authority to do it. As Paul shall explain in the subsequent verses, ministers of the gospel have license or authority from God to be sustained by the flocks which they shepherd. Of course, it is obvious that in the world of today, as well as throughout Christian history, many have also turned that license into licentiousness by abusing their authority. For instance, we have heard of churches that require their members to abandon their families in favor of supporting the church. They abuse certain passages of the gospel to justify such a thing. This entire paradigm is a false one, since in reality, the people themselves at a church, and not some organization with its own separate objectives. Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 5, but if any man provide not for his own, and especially for those of his own house, meaning his own family, he has denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. Therefore, once family comes first in priority before the community, then the community. The Greek word for cover in verse 12, where Paul says, we cover all ourselves, is the verb stego. You might actually recognize that verb stego in the name stegosaurus for a certain so-called dinosaur. Stego is primarily to cover closely in order to keep water out, to cover in order to shelter or protect, or even to cover in order to conceal or keep hidden. But here it is used by Paul, much like our modern English idiom, which is really slang, in the sense of covering one's debts or one's expenses. The King James Version has bear here. We bear all ourselves. That rendering surely may have been proper in the idiom of the English language in 1611. So I wanted to just illustrate how um, Paul's idiom has come around again into the English language, which is interesting, I think. For whatever particular reason he had, Paul refused to be supported by the assembly of Corinth. Instead, as Acts chapter 18 informs us, he worked at his vocation of tent maker while he was in Corinth. He was in Corinth for a period of over a year and a half. Paul was, however, supported by 
other assemblies at diverse times. And Paul also was supported by those other assemblies while he was preaching in Corinth. He even considered that in itself a deprivation of those other assemblies. Paul explained this in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, where he said, Can it be that I have made an error, humbling myself in order that you be elevated, because I have announced the good message of Yahweh to you freely? I have deprived other assemblies, taking provisions for your service, and being present with you and wanting I had burdened no one. Indeed, my need had been filled by the brethren who came from Macedonia. And in everything, I have kept and will keep myself unburdensome to you. And with this, with this receded, Paul refused to seek support from the Corinthians because he thought that doing so would hinder the message of the gospel. So he humbled himself by bringing them the gospel freely. Now, one aspect of this statement, and the reason by which Paul said that he humbled himself for that reason, is totally lost in the translation. And it really cannot be um, restored. One has to um, understand how the Greek customs were when somebody delivered a good message to you. The Greek word usually translated as gospel is euagelion. Euagelion, Strong's number 2098, from which we have the borrowed word evangel. For some reason, the U becoming a V in English. Literally, U agelion means good message. The prefix U is good, and an angelos is an angel or messenger. In English, the equivalent is gospel, but gospel is actually a contraction of the old Saxon phrase, spell," and it has an equivalent meaning, good message. But in classical Greek, long before Paul, and throughout the classical period, recorded from the time of Homer, the word, euagelion, originally referred not to the message itself, but to the reward which the deliverer of a good message could customarily expect to receive from the people that he delivered the message to. And that was Greek custom for centuries before Paul. As Liddell and Scott explain in the Greek-English lexicon from the time of Homer and onward, the euagelion was the reward that the euagilistes, or the evangelist, expected in return for his delivery of a good message.
For that reason, because he did so without anticipation of any reward for his services, Paul is telling the Corinthians that he humbled himself by bringing them the gospel freely. This original meaning of the word is also reflected later on in this chapter, in verse 18, where Paul asks, what then is my reward? It's lost in all English translations, including mine, because it's not really a facet of the language. It's actually a facet of the culture, and not all facets of the culture can be translated in a language. So that's why good Bible translations need notes. The Christoginian New Testament doesn't have notes, but these podcasts are an intention to present those notes. In addition to this, among the Greeks, and these things have to be understood to understand Paul's ministry among the Greeks, among the Greeks were a large variety of schools of philosophy. The Greeks customarily spent much of their leisure time at these schools. In fact, the Greek word skale is literally leisure. That's what it means in Greek. But because the Greek word skale means leisure, doesn't mean that the Greeks laid around on their asses when they took such leisure. Scale has come into the English language in words such as school and scholar. This is because in ancient Greece, leisure time was customarily spent in learning the philosophies and the sciences. The ancient Greeks, obviously, were typically much smarter than modern Americans, who, for the most part, spend their leisure time watching monkeys at play and Jews making a mockery of the creation of God. When Paul went to Ephesus, he must have converted one of these schools, one of these places for learning to the Christian cause. Where in Acts chapter 19, we see that at first Paul was proclaiming Christ in the assembly halls of the Judeans as he did customarily. And then, in verse 9, but when diverse, diverse people were hardened and believed not, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them and separated the disciples. He pulled people out of the synagogue, disputing daily in the school of one Tyrannus. Tyrannus was the owner of one of these schools where philosophy and the sciences were customarily taught. And this continued by the space of two years. so that all they which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both, I won't say it, 
both Judeans and Greeks. That's the King James, right? But these schools of philosophy did not exist freely. Rather, people paid to enter them and engage in whatever facilities they offered. Usually, these schools were owned by the philosophers themselves who lectured in them or by the patrons of those philosophers. And that is how the philosophers made their livings. They charged for the time spent by people in those schools. That leads us to discuss another facet of Paul's world, which we hardly understand today and one which persisted throughout pagan Greek, pagan Roman, and medieval Christian society. In the ancient world, men spent their leisure time learning one philosophy or another, and they supported those who they learned from. If they did not support them, the teachers would simply disappear into whatever vocations there were in which they could find gainful employment so that they could support themselves. If all the teachers disappeared, there would be no philosophy. There would be no sciences. We wouldn't have any knowledge of Euclidean geometry today or Pythagorean theorem or anything like that. For better or worse, Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, or any one of a thousand of the greater Greek philosophers did not, if they did not have the support of their students or of wealthy patrons who appreciated their work, then we would never have heard from those men. The same thing with the arts. The arts had great patrons in the Middle Ages. Accomplished artists were supported by those patrons to produce art. Whether it sold or not was immaterial. Today, the world has been securitized by the Jews. And if you're not a, 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 a system-approved scholar, it's impossible to get support. If you're not a system-approved artist, it's difficult to sell a painting. So many great, talented people are never heard from because they weren't approved by the powers that be, the princes of this world. In the ancient Greek world, philosophies were religions, belief systems by which one regulated one's life. The Stoics, the Epicureans, for examples. And the religion of Judea was treated as just another one of those philosophies by the Greeks. The Judeans had a different aspect. There were Judean assembly halls throughout the Oikumene, and as often we see attested in the book of Acts, they were attended by Greeks as well as by Judeans. 
Christianity supplanted the pagan philosophies as well as Judaism, as it was meant to do by the word of God. And Christian teachers earned the support of communities who were turning away from their former errors. Wealthy men who were formerly patrons of the pagan philosophers became patrons of Christian scholars. And men who became students of Christian teachers supported those teachers rather than support their former pagan teachers. Without the support of those who have faith in a message, the teachers of a message are naturally compelled to go on to do something else. Because we all have license to eat and to drink. Announcing the gospel freely to the Corinthians, for Paul meant taking a year and a half in Corinth and devoting himself to teaching the Corinthians daily. During that time, Paul worked when he could, but was also supported by the Christians of Macedonia, as he himself explained later. Ostensibly, not expecting anything in return from the Corinthians meant that Paul could be all the more bolder to teach them the truth of the gospel. Not taking anything from the Corinthians, Paul was able to assert that he taught them the truth without hindrance. Yet receiving sustenance from the Macedonians, Paul felt as if he was depriving, or as the King James Version has it, robbing the Macedonians by using that sustenance to support himself while teaching the Corinthians. Paul should have been sustained by the Corinthians while he was in Corinth, yet for some reason he felt that would poison the message which he delivered to them. This is the challenge which nearly all so-called Christian churches and ministries have failed to meet throughout history. They all had masters other than Christ. From the days of Constantine, most of the Christian bishops had come to willingly play second fiddle to the emperor. And then, after Justinian, they became subservient to the Bishop of Rome and then to the emperor. Today, and throughout history, they all rely on corporate funding, on government approval, on government funding, on government entitlements, on tax breaks, as well as on wealthy individuals and, and working families alike for their sustenance. But rather than teach the truth, since they have become solely dependent upon governments and corporations as well as communities for their survival, they tailor their message in order to suit the objectives of those who sustain them. The challenge of the apostles and of every minister of the gospel ever since the apostles is not to do such a thing. The true minister of the gospel has license to work when the flock will neither support nor bear the truth. Give it up, go get a job. Yet Paul, when he was in Corinth, went above and beyond that license and taught the Corinthians anyway, 
not taking his sustenance from them. Therefore, he asks the following. Do you not know that those who in, who in sacred things are laboring from of the temple they eat? Those who are attending at the altar take a share at the altar. Paul is referring to the Old Testament priesthood. Using that as an example for ministers of the gospel. The Old Testament priesthood, in part, had received its sustenance from the things sacrificed at the altar. For example, from Leviticus chapter 10, from verse 12, we read, And Moses spoke unto Aaron, and unto Eleazar, and unto Ithamar, his sons, they were left. Take the meat offering that remains the offerings of Yahweh made by fire, and eat it without leaven beside the altar, for it is most holy. And ye shall eat it in the holy place, because it is thy due and thy sons do, of the sacrifices of Yahweh made by fire. For so I am commanded. And the wave breast and heave shoulder shall you eat in a clean place, thou and thy sons and thy daughters with thee. For they be thy due and thy sons do, which are given out of the sacrifice, out of the sacrifices of the peace offerings of the children of Israel. The heave shoulder and the wave breast shall they bring with the offerings made by fire of the fat to wave it for a wave offering before Yahweh. And it shall be thine and thy sons with thee by a statute forever as Yahweh has commanded. As it was with the Old Testament, there is therefore an example for the New Testament as Paul then asserts in verse 14, as also in that manner has the prince appointed those announcing the good message from of the good message to live. Paul refers to the words of Christ in the gospel, such as where he said in Luke chapter 10, and into whatever house you should enter, first you say, peace to this house. And if in it there should be a son of peace, your peace shall rest upon it. But if not, then upon you it shall, be, it shall rebound. Then in that house you stay, eating and drinking the things from them. For the workman is worthy of his wage. Do not pass from house to house. And into whatever city you go into and they receive you, you eat the things they offer to you, and you cure those in it who are sick, and you say to them, the kingdom of Yahweh comes nigh upon you. And here I have some comments, which are my own opinion, but which are derived from Paul's words and from Paul's experience. In the Old Testament, we see that in addition to the priests who lived off of the things dedicated at the temple, there were non-priestly Levites who took tithes of the people. With those tithes, they supported themselves, and in turn, they were charged with many duties in administering the kingdom of Yahweh. We may see this in part 
in Numbers chapter 18, in verse 21, and it says, And behold, I have given the children of Levi all the tent in Israel for an inheritance, for their service which they serve, even the service of the tabernacle of the congregation. That's an entitlement, right? Today, in Christianity, there are no entitlements. There are no tithes. No one is commanded or impelled by Scripture to give anyone 10% of anything. The Levites provided many of the services to Israel, which governments perform today, and those services were worthy of a tithe. Imagine a pastor today receiving a tithe from everyone in his congregation. If his church had a hundred member families, and he received 10% of the wealth of each, he would be 10 times wealthier than any of his church's members. That would be stealing. That is licentiousness. That is abuse of license. Some churches use the roots of giving money to the poor or to widows. <laughs> Excuse me, I'm getting over a chest cold. Yahweh willing. While there were New Testament examples where Christian assemblies should indeed maintain certain widows, it was an exception rather than a rule which was based upon an absolute need. And the widows, in turn, were expected to serve the communities which supported them. They didn't have an entitlement. They worked in exchange for their care. But there are no commands or outlines for the poor. It's a roots that churches, that you give to churches so churches can take care of the poor. That's a scam. Giving to the poor is an individual responsibility every time it's mentioned in Scripture. And while Paul made a singular example in the collection which he took for the persecuted Christians in Jerusalem, all other examples are of individual efforts. One does not need a church organization which feeds itself by claiming to feed the poor. So while there is no tithe, the Christian certainly has an obligation. We should be compelled on our own to assist any of our Christian brethren who require assistance, or even those who do not necessarily require it, but who would be better off because of it if we have access. But we should also be compelled on our own to support what we believe in, because of the work of the gospel is not without expense. Here Paul, in a very kindly way, is nevertheless admonishing the Corinthians, because, as he told them more explicitly in his second epistle to them, he deprived the Macedonians for their benefit, teaching in Corinth while he was provided for by the brethren in Macedonia. 
If you do not support your Christian teachers, yet you are benefiting from their labors, then you, like these Corinthians, are freeloading on the gospel of God. That's okay. It's between you and God. Nobody should have a problem with that. The Corinthians did it. However, here Paul also tells us that this is a two-way street. If the Christian minister is not adequately supported by his pupils, he has license to work in order to support himself. In other words, don't whine. Get off your ass and go do something, as Paul also did. It is to Paul's credit that while he worked, he nevertheless continued in the gospel, and that made his life twice as difficult. Therefore, if one believes in a message and trusts that he is learning the truth, one should indeed support the messenger. But men are not forced or compelled by the law to support those who simply call themselves ministers or create organizations of men in abuse of the name of Christ. Their demands for support based upon such claims or upon a demand for tithes are not license. They are licentiousness. Paul said that if he had demanded of the Corinthians, he would be abusing his exousia or his license and giving to widows or to the poor. One should do so directly in order to assure that the gift is going to a good purpose. You're responsible for your increase and what you do with it before God. While Christ recognizes the customary gifts for the temple, and he did. And Christ knew that the temple was evil, that the people behind it was evil. But he recognized the, the Corbin, the customary gifts of the temple. But Christ did not tell the wealthy to give to the temple for the benefit of the poor. Christ told the wealthy to give to the poor directly. Go, sell your belongings and give half of it to the poor. Zechariah, the, the, the tax collector. I'm sorry, Zacchaeus, the tax collector. He said when he met Christ that he would give half of his wealth to the poor. It may have been a quarter. I think it was half. And that if he had defrauded anyone, he would pay back more than he had taken. And he was accounted righteous. He only gave away half his wealth. He didn't even have to give away all of it. That's the Christian spirit. Verse 15, Paul says, But I have indulged in not one of those things. Now, I have not written these things that in this way it would be with me. And Paul's saying, he don't want money from the Corinthians. I'm not writing this because I want money from you. Indeed, for me to be slain is still more admirable than for anyone to make void my reason to boast. <coughs> Paul claims a reason to boast because he cares. Paul cares more that the Corinthians are established in the gospel of Christ than he does 
that the Corinthians support him. If anyone in Corinth can claim that they gave Paul support, then he loses that reason to boast, and Paul insists that he would rather be slain. And he says, therefore, if I announce the good message, it is not a subject of boasting to me. In necessity, it is laid upon me. Since woe to me it is, if I would not announce the good message or the gospel. Paul did not say that his announcing the gospel was a reason to boast, but rather that he had a reason to boast to the Corinthians because to them he announced the gospel freely. He didn't receive the reward which was a custom among the Greeks to give to the announcer of a good message. Ostensibly, this is because Paul believed that it was his life's mission, and therefore he had better announce the gospel, lest he suffer worse if he refused. In Galatians chapter 1, Paul said that it pleased Yahweh, who selected me from my mother's womb, and called me through his favor to reveal his son by me that I may announce him among the nations. This is an example for all ministers of the gospel, that they should continue their work whether or not it is supported. If they do not continue their work when it's not supported, then they themselves testify to, to the legitimacy of their ministry. This is a high standard. If you believe in your own message, then you teach it and promote it whether or not it is supported. So the truth that the gospel of Christ and the word of God should be supported, but it should never be expounded for the sake of support. Paul was supported by the Macedonians, which helped him in Corinth. But Paul never required support from either the Macedonians or the Corinthians. And he would have taught them the gospel just as readily if he had never had any assistance. Beyond that, he professes a desire for a greater reward. in the kingdom of God. And he says in verse 17, For if I do this readily, I have a reward. But if involuntarily I had been entrusted with the management of a family, what then is my reward? We're going to go off on a digression here. The Greek word, oikonomia, Strong's number 3622, is primarily the management of a household or family, according to Liddell and Scott. And that most literal meaning 
is here the most sensible. In light of the context throughout this and throughout all of Paul's epistles, the King James Version has dispensation here for oikonomia. And then it adds words, which Paul did not write, in order to try to have it make sense. There are several other words Paul may have used which mean dispensation. And he could have used them if it were his intention to say dispensation. Oikonomia is a more specific word. In his second epistle to the Corinthians, in chapter 5, Paul wrote in verse 17, Therefore, if one is among the number of Christ, a new creation, the reformed Israelite, the old things pass away. Behold, new things have come, but all things from Yahweh. That adversative particle, but, is missed by most translations there. Who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and is giving the service of reconciliation to us. How that Yahweh was within Christ, reconciling the society to himself, not accounting their offenses to them, and placing in us the word of that reconciliation. Therefore, on behalf of Christ, we serve as ambassadors. As Yahweh is exhorting through us, we ask on behalf of Christ, you be reconciled to Yahweh. The ministry of reconciliation is first mentioned in the prophecy of Daniel concerning the Messiah. Seventy weeks, Daniel chapter 9. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation. For iniquity that can only describe the children of Israel. That can't describe anybody else. And to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and the prophecy and to anoint the most holy. The children of Israel are the family of God who were put off in sin. And Daniel prophecies of their reconciliation as the express purpose of the Messiah upon thy people. As Amos declared the word of Yahweh to Israel, you only have I known of all the families of the earth, therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. So the reconciliation for iniquity is for you only who I have known of all the families of the earth. Oikonomia is the management of a family. Paul. Paul was charged with bringing the message of reconciliation to God to the lost sheep of the house or family of Israel, to those who had been cast off in punishment 
The good message of the gospel was the reconciliation made by Christ for the iniquity of the children of Israel, who in their captivity became many nations according to the promise of Abraham. Some of those nations they became even before their captivity. The Dorian Greeks, 300, 400 years before the captivity. The Romans, likewise. 500 years before the captivity. Liddell and Scott list husbandry and thrift as alternate meanings for the word oikonomia, among others. Thayer adds stewardship to the list, and that's the most common translation of the word in the King James Version. All those translations are valid in certain contexts because they are all functions of the oikonomis. The oikonomis is the person charged with the office of the oikonomia. However, those words are all useless unless the context is provided, and therefore none of them fit the scope of Paul's statement here. Paul's ministry is the management of the family of God, and he confirms it in Galatians 10 and in Ephesians 2.19. I'm sorry, Galatians 6.10, where on each occasion he mentions the oikaios, and the word oikaios describes something which belongs to a household or family. Paul said in Galatians chapter 6 at verse 10, So then, while we have occasion, we should work it good towards all, but especially towards those of the family, the word oikaios, the family of the faith. That family of faith was described by Paul in Romans chapter 4 as those nations which had come from Abraham's seed. Paul said from Romans 4.16 that therefore from of the faith that in accordance with favor the mercy to come upon Israel. Then the promise is to be certain to all the offspring not to that of the law only meaning the Israelites still under the law, but also to that of the faith of Abraham, meaning all the Israelites, most of whom are no longer under the law because they had been cast out by Yahweh, divorced Israel, divorced Judah, but also to that of the faith of Abraham, who is the father, of us all, just as it is written, that a father of many nations I have made you before Yahweh, who he trusted, who raises the dead to life and calls things not existing, none of those nations that Paul visited and brought the gospel of Christ to existed at the time of Abraham, none of them. There were Phrygians, and Paul mentions Phrygia. There were Ionian Greeks, and Paul taught at Athens. But Paul, Paul didn't bring the gospel of Christ to those places because they were Jephthites. He brought the gospel of Christ to Israelites in Greece. And the difference in his message 
Sylvagaeonians in Acts 14 to the Athenians in Acts 17 are very clear where he does not preach reconciliation and Christ to Jephthites, but only to Israelites. And none of the Israelite nations Paul went to existed at the time of Abraham. Yahweh calls things not existing, not existing yet, as existing because he knew they would. Who went contrary to expectation because he was so old and because Sarah was so old. In expectation believed for which he would become a father of many nations according to the declaration, thus your sperma, your offspring, will be. The Old Testament prophets spoke of the casting off of Israel in punishment, as we have seen mentioned in Amos chapter 3. In Jeremiah chapter 30, it says, Likewise, for I am with thee, saith Yahweh, to save thee, though I make a full end of all nations where I have scattered thee, yet will I not make a full end of thee, but I will correct thee in measure and will not leave thee altogether unpunished. In the end, only Israel is left and only Israel inherits the promises. Paul tells the Ephesians in his epistle to them in chapter 2, in verse 19, so therefore you are no longer strangers and sojourners, but fellow citizens of the saints and of the household of Yahweh, or Caius, being built upon, and this is important, because there's nowhere in the Old Testament that you're going to find a promise of Gentiles or non-Israelites to be made the household of Yahweh after the coming of the Messiah. <laughs> So therefore you are no longer strangers and sojourners, but fellow citizens of the saints and of the household of Yahweh, being built upon the foundation of the ambassadors and the prophets, the apostles and the prophets. You don't find replacement theology in the prophets. You don't find spiritual Israel in the prophets. Yahshua Christ being the chief cornerstone himself. The Ephesians were strangers and sojourners because, as Paul said to them earlier in that same chapter, they were Israel, Israelites cast off from the presence of Yahweh in punishment. Where in verse 12 he says, because you had at that time been apart from Christ, the time of their punishment, having been alienated, so they must have been part of it at one time. And the King James has aliens. The King James takes a past tense now, I'm sorry, a past tense verb and translates it as a noun, which is dishonest. It's a past tense verb. Having been alienated from the civic life of Israel and strangers of the covenants of the promise, they were estranged they became strangers to God in their period of punishment. Not having hope 
and in the society without Yahweh. Paul also confirms the scope of his ministry in Romans chapter 9 and in Hebrews chapter 8, where he tells us who the new covenant had been made with as he professes in Ephesians according to the foundation of the ambassadors and the prophets. If Paul is saying these things according to the foundation of the ambassadors and the prophets, and the prophets said the New Testament was for the children of Old Testament Israel, then Paul is not contradicting himself. In Romans chapter 9, Paul wrote, For I prayed that I myself would be accursed from the anointed for the brethren, my kinsmen in regards to the flesh, those who are Israelites, because as he explains later in the chapter, many of the people in Israel are Edomites. They're not his kinsmen in regard to the flesh. Those who are Israelites, whose position is the position of sons and the honor and the covenants and the legislation and the service and the promises, those who are the fathers, and of whom are the anointed in regards to the flesh, being blessed over all of Yahweh for the ages. I will elevate you above all the people of the earth. Therefore we see that the covenants, plural, and the promises, plural, are for Israelites, and that Israelites are reckoned according to the flesh built on the foundation of the prophets. Paul never says that those covenants and promises are for non-Israelites. Likewise, in Hebrews chapter 8, Paul quoted Jeremiah chapter 31, and he wrote, censuring them, meaning Israelites. He says, behold, the days are coming, says Yahweh, and I will consummate for the house of Israel, the oikos of Israel, and for the house of Judah, the oikos of Judah. A new covenant, not according to the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day of my taking, hold of their hand to lead them from out of the land of Egypt, because they did not abide my covenant. I then disregarded them, says Yahweh. He punished them. For this is the covenant which I will devise with the same people, with the house of Israel after those days, says Yahweh, giving my law into their mind. I will also inscribe them upon their hearts, and I will be for them a God, and they shall be for me a people. The word for house in Hebrews chapter 8 is oikos, and it literally means house. But from the earliest times, in Greek and in Hebrew, it was used to describe a family as members of the house and the descendants of any particular family. As the phrase house of Israel appears throughout scripture to describe the literal descendants of the Israelites. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we shall see, Yahweh willing, Paul's attestation that not only the Corinthians, but also the people of the surrounding nations were indeed Israelites, not according to some imagined spiritual concept 
because as Clifton likes to say, there's no such thing as spiritual sperm. But according to the flesh, which is the Israel of God to whom the promises were made, as Paul attested in Acts chapter 26, several years after this first epistle to the Corinthians was written, the promises to Israel were to the 12 tribes of Israel. And Israel, 30 years after the crucifixion, 35 years perhaps, Israel was still reckoned by tribes. Where, he said before, Herod Agrippa, from verse 7, unto which promise our 12 tribes, instantly serving God day and night, hope to come. 35 years after the crucifixion. I'm sorry. I'm bad at math. 25 years. 57, 58 AD. Herod Agrippa, probably closer to 59. So that's 27 years. For which hope's sake, for which hope's sake, the hope of the promise coming to the 12 tribes, for which hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused of the Jews. In that manner, we also see that at this time, Paul reckoned the Jews and the 12 tribes to be two different groups. Imagine that. A year after that, as a prisoner in Rome, Paul exclaimed that for the hope of Israel, I am bound with this chain, 60 A.D. On every possible occasion, the Christian New Testament was translated in a manner which elucidates the scriptural and literal fulfillments of the promises of Yahweh God, while also adhering to the plain meanings of the Greek word where Paul spoke in Galatians of the family, the oikos of the faith. He was referring to the house, or the oikos, of Israel. Here he calls his ministry an oikonomia, because he is managing that family in the gospel of their reconciliation to God. To repeat Paul's words from this verse, to talk about it from a different perspective, for if I do this readily, I have a reward. But if involuntarily, I had been entrusted with the management of the family. What then is my reward? Announcing the good message that I would set forth, the good message without expense, with respect not to abuse my authority in the good message. On many occasions in his epistles, Paul considered himself a servant of Christ, where the Greek word for servant, Romans chapter 1, 
in the opening is a good example of this. Where the Greek word for servant is doulos, Strong's number 1401. Properly a doulos, not a diaconus or minister. A doulos is an involuntary servant or slave, where a diaconus is usually a paid servant or a voluntary one. A doulos was originally, in classical Greek, one who was born as a bondman or slave. And in Galatians chapter 1, we see Paul attest that he was chosen from his mother's womb for the task of the gospel of Christ. If Paul had volunteered to be an apostle of Christ, his reward would be found, perhaps in the temporal compensation, which he could expect to execute the office, or perhaps simply in the fame of the office. Rather, Paul was compelled to be an apostle. He had to do it. He didn't have a choice. Which is evident in the words of Christ, in the descriptions of the event on the road to Damascus, and which Paul understood that he ultimately had no choice but to accept. Therefore, since he had no choice, he explains that his reward is found only if he expects no compensation for executing the task. That doesn't mean that he doesn't have expenses. Paul admits that his needs were fulfilled by those of Macedonia while he was in Corinth, but and here's the key to understanding this. Paul never exacted anything of the Macedonians. Rather, they volunteered to assist his cause. Likewise, Paul never exacted anything of the Corinthians. If Paul had sought to exact anything in exchange for his message, as he describes here at the end of verse 18, he considers that an abuse of the message and his license being a minister of the gospel. Doing this, Paul sets a model which all ministers of the gospel should follow, to work for the gospel out of necessity, out of a sense of duty, accepting whatever assistance may come, but nevertheless, working without expectation. Therefore, Paul considered himself a bondman, which corroborates our assessment of his words, where he then asserts in verse 19, therefore, being free from all, to all I myself have become a bondman in order that I would gain of the greater profit. And here Paul shows an understanding of the words of Christ as they are recorded in Matthew chapter 23, where he said, But he that is greatest among you shall be your servant. And in Mark 10, And whoever of you will be chiefest shall be servant of all. Paul did not seek worldly gain, and he could have. He had license to. 
but rather he sought treasure in heaven in exchange for his service in the gospel of God. He taught the gospel without charge or fee, but whatever gifts did come to him, he employed in the service of the gospel by living off of those gifts while he was teaching. So he received sustenance from the Macedonians while he taught the Corinth. I'm sorry, while he taught in Corinth, not laying any charge to the Corinthians. As he attests here in this chapter, Paul had license to work for his sustenance if he needed to do so. But ostensibly, it was better for all if he could remain in the teaching of the gospel rather than having to work. The pagan Greek philosophers of Paul's time being supported by the Macedonians and not by the Corinthians, who they would be teaching, would have readily abandoned Corinth to go to Macedonia to teach if the Macedonians were willing to support them and the Corinthians were not. Rather than remaining in Corinth, as Paul did, persisting in their teaching, as Paul did, and working at some menial vocation in order to earn a living when he had to do so. In all of this, we hope to be able to define the operation of a valid Christian ministry. Of course, in order to be valid, according to Christ, it must be an identity ministry, because only Christian identity is found to be in the spirit of Malachi chapter 4. As Christ himself said, that he, it was necessary for such a ministry before his return. But here, we are attempting to define not the content or the objective of a valid ministry, but the operation of a valid Christian ministry. A valid Christian ministry does not charge for sermons. It does not charge for memberships. It doesn't even take a membership role. A valid Christian ministry does not make regular solicitations in order to beg for support. A valid Christian ministry does not impose even upon those who benefit from it. Rather, a valid Christian ministry gratefully accepts what it receives and continues in the work of the gospel regardless of what it receives. A valid Christian minister, when his ministry does not support him in his work, quietly and happily goes to work to support himself. As Paul asserts here, he and Barnabas did indeed have license to work. But if Paul compelled the Corinthians to support him, he saw that as an abuse of his license to live off of the flock which he shepherds. If a minister of the gospel abandons the gospel, then his ministry was not valid. 
If he continues in the gospel, even though he is compelled to work, he does so with the persuasion that he is called to do so. He does so with a sense of duty if he loves his people. His reward is forthcoming, but it is not of this world. On the other hand, the valid Christian ministry should be supported by those who benefit from it, as Paul also professes here. But it should never be compelled or even expected. This is the example which Paul is setting here. And his own interaction with the Corinthians elucidates that fully. Furthermore, and this example is not found here, but elsewhere in Scripture, when a Christian ministry has abundance, it should seek to do with its excess what any Christian should do with his excess, and that is to return it to the Christian community with a meaningful purpose, thereby edifying the body of Christ. Paul continues to defend his ministry to the Corinthians who question him, illustrating a purpose for which he was uniquely qualified. And he says, And I became to the Judeans as a Judean, that I would gain the Judeans. And to those subject to law, as subject to law, not being subject to law myself, that I would gain those subject to law. Those subject to law are the same as the Judeans. And Paul only qualifies his statement in the use of the Hebrew parallelism. Now, the majority text and some later manuscripts are wanting the parenthetical statement, which reads, not being subject to law myself. And therefore, it is not found in the King James Version. However, it is found in the ancient codices, the Sinaiticus, the Vaticanus, the Ephraim Siri, and the Claromontanus. Verse 21. To those without law, as without law, not being without the law of Yahweh, but be keeping within the law of Christ. The law of Christ is the law of Yahweh. That I would gain those without law. We have seen that Paul believed he was chosen from the womb of his mother for the task of bringing the gospel to the dispersions of the nations of Israel. We have also seen that he believed that he was compelled by Christ to do so, and that he had no choice of his own in the matter. Paul was a truly brilliant man, and he also realized that the circumstances of his life had prepared him for the task to which he was assigned. Paul was educated in both Judaism which he also realized was a corrupted form of the Hebrew religion of his fathers, and in classical, classical Greek learning. 
He professes having been raised or trained at the seat of Gamaliel, the famous teacher of the law. But in Acts chapter 21, he also attests to being of Tarsus, a city in Calicia, a citizen of no mean city. Now, he doesn't speak explicitly of the education he received in Tarsus. However, Strabo says of Tarsus in his geography in Book 14, Chapter 5, and Strabo is writing maybe about 50 years before Paul wrote this epistle, and Strabo said, The people at Tarsus have devoted themselves so eagerly, not only to philosophy, but also to the whole round of education in general, that they have surpassed Athens, Alexandria, or any other place that can be named where there have been schools, and lectures of philosophers. Evidently, while Paul did not talk explicitly about having an education in the classics, something rubbed off on him in Tarsus. Paul certainly did have an education in the classics, as his writings consistently betray. However, one must become familiar with the classics in order to understand how well Paul had read them himself. As we asserted in our presentation of Acts chapter 17 here last year, and surely this can be added to, Paul quoted writers such as Aratus and Epimenides, and possibly also Euripides and Heraclitus, and he drew analogies from Homer, and from Xenophon. However, this education in classical literature did not merely assist his rhetorical skill or his writing ability. More importantly, Paul understood the origins of the nations of Europe in a way that only those who have deeply studied both scripture and the classical literature can understand. While the other apostles were certainly not unintelligent, they were unlearned, as the scripture itself suggests in Acts chapter 4. Being unschooled, they weren't men of leisure. They were men of fishing. They were not suited for the task which was, which was given to Paul. They simply weren't. None of the other apostles could have fulfilled the task which was given to Paul. They were not equipped for it. I know that God can do anything. But God doesn't magically zap knowledge down into your head. You learn the way of God from the study of Scripture. The other apostles, they knew their Scripture. But Paul knew Scripture and 
classical history, classical poetry, classical philosophy, and other aspects of what would be a classical education at his time. Paul was in a unique position to fulfill the task which Yahweh required in order to reconcile Israel to bring the gospel to the lost Israelites of Europe. Only a man who could speak both to Judeans from a Judean perspective and to Greeks from a Greek perspective had the capability to perform such a task. Paul used the Judean assembly halls, which were commonly attended by both Judeans and Greeks, and which existed in nearly every large Greek city, as stepping stones in each community where he brought the gospel. With this, he reached both non-pagan Judean Israelites and the formerly pagan Israelites of the ancient dispersions. With this, as Christ attested in John chapter 4, we see that salvation is from among the Judeans, who are not to be confused for Jews. Those subject to law were the Judeans of the remnant of Israel who had spread themselves throughout the empire. Those without law were the tribes of Israel cast off from Yahweh, among whom Paul counted Galatians, Dorian Greeks, here in his epistle to the Corinthians. Scythians and Romans. An examination of classical history in conjunction with something Paul did not have, and that was archaeology, and Old Testament scripture proves Paul to have been correct in his accounting. Christ had told his apostles, if you love me, keep my commandments. With those words, as well as in many other places, we see that Christianity is not without law, even though Christian Israelites are not going to be judged by the law. <laughs> in order to understand what Paul said, not being without the law of Yahweh, but keeping within the law of Christ. We must examine the words of the prophets concerning the Messiah to see what we are told in relation to this. If there is a change in law, it must be prophesied within the law and the prophets or we cannot trust that there is any change at all. However, in Daniel chapter 9, we read this concerning the Messiah. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins. Now, sin didn't end. We kept sinning. So somehow we must have been freed from the law to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity, and to bring in 
everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and the prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto beside a prince shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. And after the threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, and in the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. In Jeremiah chapter 31, it says of the new covenant, Behold, the days come, saith Yahweh, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they broke, although I was a husband unto them. There's our biggest clue here in how we get a change in law. Although I was a husband unto them, saith Yahweh, but this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith Yahweh, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people the same Israelites, the house of Israel, the house of Judah, the oikos. And here we have the oikonomos, Paul of Tarsus, the steward of the house of God. In Romans chapter 2, Paul explained that those outside of the law were cleansed by Christ, referring to the Israelites of the dispersions. Paul then cited this very passage of Jeremiah in reference to the Romans themselves, who, although they were indeed Israelites who had been alienated from God, exhibited the proof of prophecy of God's people found in Jeremiah, by founding a society based upon a sense of justice in the rule of law. In Romans chapter 3, Paul explained that this was because the righteousness of God was apart from the law. Paul then asked, in Romans 3, the rhetorical question as to whether Christians should disregard the laws of God because of the faith, and he answered it himself where he wrote, Do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid, rather, we establish the law. In Romans chapter 7, Paul explained why Israel would not be judged by the law, because God the husband, by his mercy, chose to die to release Israel the wife from that judgment. That's why he mentions his husbandship in Jeremiah I was a husband unto thee in connection with his new law under the new covenant.
reading another prophecy of a Messiah in Isaiah chapter 9. Christians should realize that Yahweh God and Yahshua Christ are indeed one and the same being, where it says, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. For the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal, the zeal which Yahweh had for Israel, the zeal of Yahweh of hosts will perform this. And then we're told who this is for. Yahweh sent a word unto Jacob, and it lighted upon Israel. The light, the word made flesh. Yahweh sent a word unto Jacob, and it is lighted upon Israel. Realizing that Yahweh and Yahshua are all one, where Christ says, my commandments keep my commandments, it is realized that he refers to the commandments of God found in the Old Testament. The natural laws of man are written upon the hearts of man, and the only aspects of the law done away with in Christ are those which the Scripture says are done away with. The ritual sacrifices and the other things relating specifically to the Levitical priesthood, which has been supplanted by Christ. The new high priest of the Melchizedek priesthood, which preceded the Levitical priesthood. The Levitical priesthood and its sacrifices, rituals, oblations, and everything else related to it were meant to be temporary for the maintenance of the Old Testament kingdom. For that reason, Paul says in Hebrews chapter 7, for the priesthood being changed... There is made of necessity a change also of the law. Since the law of Yahweh says these things should be done away with in the Messiah, referring to the sacrificial rituals, the oblations, and other things related to the Levitical priesthood, then Paul was within the law of Yahweh by teaching as much, and therefore considered himself to be within the law of Christ, which was the law of Yahweh. And if you continue after the Messiah comes to practice these things related to the Levitical priesthood, you're in denial of those, all those parts of the law of Yahweh which pertain to Christ and of Christ himself. Verse 22 I became weak to the weak that I would gain the weak. To all I have become all things in order that of all I will preserve some. Now, a lot of people think that Paul is um, forward for saying that he could save anybody. But the Apostle James would agree. 
where he talks about that same thing. James 5.20. Let him know that he who converts the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. When we take a part in the gospel of Christ and bring it to our brethren, we get a share of the credit. James and Paul, two witnesses. Paul here is attesting. I'm sorry, verse 23. Moreover, I do all these things on account of the gospel, on account of the good message, in order that I shall come to have a share of it. Paul was attesting that he spoke to people on their own level. Rather than speaking down to people from his level, as the Pharisees and the other worldly authorities are wont to do, understanding the differing Judaic and pagan perspectives, Paul was able to talk to a pagan, was to talk to pagan Israel from the perspective of the pagan literature, and he was able to talk to remnant Israel from the perspective of the biblical literature. While the Romans to whom Paul wrote were already Christians, a comparison of the perspectives of the epistles to the Romans and the Hebrews, which were evidently written only a short time apart from one another, reveals the differing perspectives by which Paul had addressed each group. Verse 24, do you not know that those running in a race, while all run, but one takes the prize, in that manner you run in order that you shall obtain, but all who are contending in all things have self-control, so then those people, meaning those who run in worldly races, in order that they would receive a corruptible crown, but we, those who run the race for Christ, an incorruptible. It is not that only one Israelite may be rewarded in the kingdom of heaven, but that every Israelite should live his or her life in the service of Christ as if that were so. The admonition to self-control is the understanding of Christian license, while not letting one's license become licentiousness. Paul understood. Paul knew before anybody except perhaps Christ that all Israel would be saved. As he stated explicitly in Romans chapter 11, and as he also inferred, in other places in his epistles. But even in that knowledge, Paul nevertheless understood that he should live his life striving to do better than mere salvation, seeking to store up that treasure in heaven which Christ had spoken of in the gospel. From Mark chapter 10, From the King James. And Jesus said unto him, 
Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. Thou knowest the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder or kill. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Defraud not. Honor thy father and mother. And he answered and said unto him, Master, all these things I have observed from my youth. Then Jesus, beholding him, loved him and said, One thing thou lackest. Go thy way, sell whatsoever thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross, and follow me. And he was sad at that saying, and went away grieved, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked round about, and saith unto his disciples, How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? Of course, the young man would be saved. But he would be saved in spite of himself and without that treasure in heaven, not properly dispensing with the gifts which he was given in this life. Paul did not have the riches of this life. All Christians do not have the same gifts. But Paul had something far more valuable, the knowledge of Scripture and the identity of the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So as he was commanded to do, he brought the gospel of reconciliation to them, disciplining, disciplining his body in order that he may fulfill the task at hand, and thereby keeping himself from the evils of the world which cause distractions, which pull us away from the task which God has given us. And he says... In verse 26, accordingly, in that manner, I run not as if secretly. In that manner, I spar not as if thrashing air. Rather, I beat my body and bring it into subjection, lest perchance I, having proclaimed to others, myself should be found not standing the test. Paul practiced what he preached. He preached continence. He practiced continence. He preached self-control. He practiced self-control. He maintained himself apart from worldly lusts. It is not that Paul was without lust. As he explains in Romans chapter 7, that he did indeed have lust, but that he did not surrender himself to lust so that he was able to fulfill his mission. It is not that Paul would have gone to hell if he did not fulfill his assignment, all Israel shall be saved. Rather, Paul would not have had an expectation of that treasure in heaven if he himself failed in the gospel which he had taught to others. With this, we shall close. And perhaps, perhaps tomorrow night, discuss this same topic in some degree with Pastor Mark Downey, Walking the Walk, Part 3, to which Mark may append comments, which he describes as being 
beyond walking the walk, and that is racing the race. We will be here next Friday with 1 Corinthians chapter 10, part 11 of this series, which may be subtitled, Israel According to the Flesh. Praise Yahweh. Thank you for listening, and good night.